Welcome to today's reading for March 1st, 2024 of the Mason City and Fort Dodge papers. I'm your reader, Bob, and here's our first story. Israeli troops fire on crowd from Rafa in the Gaza Strip. Israeli troops fired on a crowd of Palestinians racing to pull food off an aid convoy in Gaza City on Thursday, witnesses said. More than 100 people were killed in the chaos, bringing the death toll since the start of the Israeli-Hamas war to more than 30,000, according to health officials. Israel claimed many of the dead were trampled in a stampede for the food aid and that its troops only fired when they felt endangered by the crowd. Arab countries quickly condemned the attack. Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Jordan accused Israel of targeting civilians in the incident. U.S. President Joe Biden expressed concern it would add to the difficulty of negotiating a ceasefire in the nearly five-month conflict. The Gaza City area was amongst the first targets of Israel's air, sea, and ground offensive, launched in response to the Hamas militant group's October 7th attack into Israel. While many Palestinians fled the invasion north of the enclave, a few hundred thousand are believed to remain in the largely devastated and isolated region. Several deliveries of aid reached this er the area this week, officials said. The increase in alarm over hunger across Gaza has fueled international calls for a ceasefire, and the U.S., Egypt, and Qatar are working to secure a deal between Israel and Hamas for a pause in fighting and the release of some of the hostages Hamas took during its October 7th attack. Mediators hope to reach an agreement before the Muslim holy month of Ramadan starts about March 10th, but so far, Israel and Hamas have remained far apart in public on the demands. The ministry maintains detailed records of casualties. It counts from previous wars have largely matched those of UN independent experts and even Israel's own tallies. In Hamas's cross-border raid on October 7th, an estimated 1,200 people, mostly civilians, were killed, and militants took 250 people captive, according to Israeli authorities. Hamas and other militants are still holding about 100 hostages and the remains of about 30 more after releasing most of the other captives during a November ceasefire. In other news, on the war front, in a poll, U.S. adults split on support of, for Ukraine military funding. A partisan divide reflected in Congress where a bill was $60 billion for Kiev languishes out of Washington as Russia makes battlefield advances and Ukrainian soldiers run short on ammunition, U.S. adults have become fractured along party lines in their support for sending military aid to Kiev, according to a poll from the Associated Press NORC Center for Public Affairs Research. <clears throat> Democrats are more likely to say the U.S. government is spending too little on funding the Ukraine from than they were in November but Republicans remain convinced it's too much. That divide is reflected in Congress, where the Democratic-held Senate, with <clears throat> help from 22 GOP senators, passed a $95 billion aid package for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan this month. But the bill, which includes about $60 billion in military support for Kyiv, languishes in the Republican-held House, as Speaker Mike Johnson so far refused to bring it up for a vote. President Joe Biden, along with top Democrats and senior Republican leader Mitch McConnell, 
urged the Republican Speaker during a White House meeting this week to take up the foreign aid package. Johnson responded by saying that Congress must take care of America's needs first. Most Republicans still share Johnson's view, and their opinions haven't changed significantly since the fall. 55% say the U.S. is spending too much on Ukraine aid compared to 59% in November. Meanwhile, support for increasing Ukraine aid has grown among Democrats. About 4 in 10 Democrats say the U.S. is spending too little on aid to Ukraine in the war against Russia, up from 17% in November. The share of Democrats who say the U.S. is spending too much, or about the right amount, has also dropped over the same period. Chloe Henninger, 24, a Democrat from West Hartford, Connecticut, was among those who said the U.S. is spending too little on aid to Ukraine. She said it was important for the U.S. to show commitment to democracies like Ukraine that are under siege. From a humanitarian point of view, there were sovereign borders agreed upon internationally, and then an autocratic power went and invaded a sovereign territory. The U.S., as one of the major military forces in the world, sort of has a duty to respond, said Henninger, a cosmetic chemist. Majorities of Democrats think it's extremely or very important to prevent Russia from seizing more Ukraine territory, to negotiate a permanent ceasefire between the two countries, help Ukraine regain its land, and provide general aid to its military, while less than half of Republicans and independents agree, the poll shows. At the same time, Donald Trump, the former president who appears to be marching towards the Republican nomination, injected serious doubts about America's involvement in Ukraine and the rest of the world. While McConnell, the top Republican in the Senate, has remained a strong advocate for robust American involvement abroad, Trump has swayed the party towards an isolationist stance, as well as at times heaped admiration on Putin's strongman style of rule. We're throwing all this taxpayer money to Ukraine and to Israel, and we can't even take care of our own people, said Jeffrey Jackson, a 55-year-old Republican from Granbury, Texas. The U.S. government needs to take care of our own people and then worry about the rest of the world. Jackson also holds deeply unfavorable views of Biden and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. While Jackson said he was not pro-Putin, he liked the way Putin had led Russia more than how Biden has led the U.S. Putin is broadly unpopular among the U.S. adults, including Republicans. About 8 in 10 U.S. adults have an unfavorable opinion of Putin, including nearly 9 of 10 Democrats and three-quarters of Republicans. Views of Zelensky are more reflective of the divisions over the war itself. About 4 in 10 U.S. adults have a favorable opinion of Zelensky, while Democrats have a more positive view than Republicans. When it comes to Ukraine, partisan divisions persist even on questions about basic diplomacy. For example, around 4 in 10 Republicans say that negotiating a permanent ceasefire between Russia and Ukraine should be an extremely or very important foreign policy goal for the U.S. compared to 6 in 10 Democrats. In election 2024 news, Candidates visit border. Biden and Trump hold dueling events 300 miles apart in Texas, in Brownsville, Texas. 300 miles apart, President Joe Biden and likely Republican challenger Donald Trump walked along the U.S.-Mexican border Thursday in Texas in dueling trips underscoring how important immigration has become for the 2024 election. They each got a briefing for on 
operations and issues, walked the border and gave remarks that overlapped. But that's where the comparisons end. Biden, who sought to spotlight how Republicans tanked a bipartisan border security deal on Trump's orders, went to the Rio Grande Valley city of Brownsville. For nine years, this was the busiest corridor for illegal crossings, but they have dropped sharply in recent months. The president walked a quiet stretch of the border along the Rio Grande and received a lengthy operations briefing from Homeland Security agents who talked to him bluntly about what more they needed. Trump, meanwhile, continued his dialed-up attacks on migrants arriving to the border, deriding them as terrorists and criminals after harnessing rhetoric once used by Adolf Hitler to argue migrants are poisoning the blood of America. Trump was in Eagle Pass, about 325 miles northwest of Brownsville, in the corridors that's currently seen the largest number of crossings. He went to a local park that has become a Republican symbol of defiance against the federal immigration enforcement practices. Governor Greg Abbott and Texas National Guard soldiers gave him a tour, showing off razor wire they put up on Abbott's orders and in defiance of a Supreme Court order. The number of people who are illegally crossing the U.S. border has risen for years for complicated reasons that include climate change, war, and unrest in other nations, the economy, and cartels that see migration as a cash cow. Arrests for illegal crossings fell by half in January, but there were record highs in December. The number of migrants flowing across the U.S.-Mexican border has far outpaced the capacity of an immigration system that has not been substantially updated in decades. According to an AP-NORC poll in January, the share of voters concerned about immigration rose from to 35% from 27% last year. In general news, humanoid robot maker partners with OpenAI. Figure envisions human-like robots in workplaces and homes. Chat GBT maker OpenAI is looking to fuse its artificial intelligence systems into the bodies of humanoid robots as part of a new deal with robotic startup Figure. Sunnyvale, California-based Figure announced the partnership Thursday along with $675 million in venture capital funding from a group that includes Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, as well as Microsoft chipmaker NVIDIA and the startup funding divisions of Intel and OpenAI. Figure is less than two years old and doesn't have a commercial product, but is persuading influential tech industry backers to support its vision of shipping billions of human-like robots to the world's workplaces and homes. If we can just get humanoids to do work that humans are not wanting to do because there's a shortfall of humans, we can sell millions of humanoids, billions maybe, figure CEO Brett Hancock told the Associated Press last year. For OpenAI, which dabbled in robotics research before pivoting to a focus on the AR large language models that powered chat GBT, GPT, the partnership will open up new possibilities for how robots can help in everyday life. Peter Wellander, the San Francisco company's vice president of product and partnerships, said in a written statement, Financial terms of the deal between Figure and OpenAI weren't disclosed. The collaboration will have OpenAI building specialized AI models for Figure's humanoid robots, likely based on OpenAI's existing technology, such as GBT language models. 
the image generator Doll-E, and the new video generator Sora. This will help accelerate Figure's commercial timeline by engaging its robots to process and reason from language, according to Figure's announcement. The company announced in January an agreement with BMW to put its robots to work at a car plant in Spartansburg, South Carolina, but has yet determined exactly how or when they would be used. Robotics experts differ on the usefulness of robots shaped in humanoid form. Most robots employed in factory and warehouse tasks must have some animal-like features, a robotic arm, finger-like grippers, or even legs, but aren't truly humanoid. That's in part because it takes decades for robotics engineers to develop robots that can walk effectively on two legs or reliably manipulate small objects. Whitney Rockley, co-founder and managing partner of Toronto-based venture capital firm McRock Capital, said she understands the appeal of humanoids because they're relatable, evoking emotions and starting conversations. In practice, however, she said they're still awkward and pose huge technical challenges, which is why she's sticking to investing in non-humanoid robots. We look at robotics and automation really practically and say, what kind of timeline are we willing to commit to in order to really see commercial liftoff and deployment and applications, Rockley said. And I think that the groups that are backing a lot of humanoid solutions right now, they're in there for the long haul, which is great because you need that, but it's going to take decades upon decades. In the biggest sports news of the day, Hawkeye star Clark to enter WNBA draft. Iowa star Caitlin Clark, who is on the verge of becoming the all-time NCAA scoring leader in college basketball, announced Thursday she will leave the Hawkeyes after this season and enter the WNBA draft. While this season is far from over and we have lots more goals to achieve, it will be my last one at Iowa, Clark wrote on social media. Clark has become the focal point of women's basketball with her flashy play and three-point shot. Often from the on-court logo, many players would be benched from shooting from so far out, but Clark has a green light from her coach and has delivered while also finding her teammates and hitting the boards. The guard, with one more year of eligibility, became the all-time leading women's scorer in major college basketball by scoring 33 points to pass Lynette Woodard and post her 17th career triple-double in a 108-60 victory over Minnesota on Wednesday. In her announcement, she thanks her teammates, coaches, and the thousands of fans who have packed arenas across the country to watch her and the sixth-ranked Hawkeyes. Those fans were chanting, One more year! One more year! while Clark was being interviewed on the court Wednesday night, when she also broke the NCAA single-season record by sinking eight three-pointers for a total of 156. She has 3,650 career points. Woodard had 3,649 points for Kansas from 77 to 81, before the NCAA sanctioned the sport. Earlier this month, Clark broke Kelsey Plum's NCAA scoring record of 3,527 points. Next up is the overall NCAA scoring record of Pete Maravich, who is just 17 points ahead of her. Clark is expected to be the top pick in the draft on April 15th. 
The Indiana Fever, who have the first pick, indicated on social media shortly after Clark's announcement that they intend to select her. We're just simply reminding you that there are only 46 days until the 2024 WNBA draft, the team posted after dropping a link to its game tickets and, and a conspicuous number one. Clark's final regular season home game at Iowa is likely to bring one of the priciest tickets in women's college basketball history. The cheapest ticket listed Thursday on TickPick.com for the Sunday game against number 2 Ohio State was $481. In baseball news, Dodgers Otani reveals he is married in social media posts. From Tokyo, Shohei Otani has stunningly revealed he's married. Otani wrote on Thursday on Instagram in Japanese, The season is approaching, but I would like to announce to everyone that I have gotten married. He said his new wife was a Japanese woman without identifying her. He said he would reveal more in an interview, presumably at the Los Angeles Dodgers spring training venue. The 29-year-old Itani is Japan's biggest celebrity, and there has been curiosity around his personal life, which he has always kept very private. His focus and his image has always been 100% baseball-focused, free of scandals or tabloid news. Otani moved from the Angels to the Dodgers in December on a record-breaking contract worth $700 million over 10 years. I began a new chapter of my career with the Dodgers, but I, was also, I have also started a new life with someone from my native country of Japan who is very special to me, he wrote. He asked the media to refrain from conducting unauthorized interviews. The post on Instagram included a photo of his dog, Decopen, which is also called decoy. He wrote, we hope the two of us and one animal will work together. From Philadelphia, Philadelphia snapped its popular $1 hot dog nights, scrapped its popular $1 hot dog nights for the 2024 season. The Phillies replaced dollar dogs on select dates with a two-for-one deal at two April games at Citizens Bank Park. From the Toronto Blue Jays, Toronto reliever Eric Swanson's son Toby has been discharged from a Florida pediatric intensive care unit. The four-year-old boy was hit by a car Sunday in Clearwater and was airlifted in critical condition to John Hopkins All Children's Hospital in St. Petersburg. Swanson's wife, Madison, shared the update on her son's recovery in an Instagram story Wednesday night. From the San Francisco Giants, San Francisco right-hander Tristan Beck was diagnosed with an aneurysm in his upper left of his pitching arm and is evaluating his treatment options after the condition was checked when he began experiencing numbness in his hand. Beck is a projected starter for the Giants, but he could miss significant time. In uniform news, Baseball Players Association head Tony Clark is hopeful 2024 uniforms will soon be altered following complaints by his members. The uniforms, designed by Nike and manufactured by Fanatics, have been criticized by players for pants that are somewhat see-through and for lettering, sleeve emblems, and numbering that are less bulky and apparently smaller. In salary news, Major League Baseball average salary rose 7.1% last year to a record of $4,525,719, according to the annual report the Players Association issued Thursday. 
but several teams appear to be cutting payroll for 2024. In a brief summary of NBA news, the Warriors beat the Knicks, the Bucks beat the Hornets, the Suns beat the Rockets, the Magic beat the Jazz, the Nets beat the Hawks, the Spurs beat the Thunder, the Nuggets beat the Heat, and the Lakers beat the Wizards in overtime. In NHL news, the Hurricanes beat the Blue Jackets, the Islanders beat the Red Wings, the Sabres beat the Lightning in overtime, Panthers beat the Canadians, Maple Leafs beat the Coyotes, the Stars beat the Jets, the Predators beat the Wild, the Avalanche beat the Blackhawks, the Kraken beat the Penguins, the Kings beat the Canutes, and Boston won as well. There were no obituaries listed today to report. In Mason City's five-day weather forecast, today is supposed to be sunny, breezy, and mild, with winds 15 to 25 miles per hour and a high of 54. Tonight, it'll be clear with the wind of 7 to 14 miles an hour and a low of 31. Saturday, there's times of sun and cloud with wind from 8 to 16 miles per hour, a high of 61 and a low of 46. Sunday, the warmest day of the week, is supposed to be breezy and warm with winds from 12 to 25 miles per hour, a high of 72 and a low of 33. Going into next week, temperatures will be slowly falling through the first part of the week and then rising toward the end of the week. In music news, 10 landmark albums are turning 50 this year as as they celebrate the hits of 1974. Let's set the Wayback Machine to 1974, shall we? It was a year of an oil embargo, a deadly spring outbreak of tornadoes, and the only resignation of a sitting president of the United States. A grim time for the history books, to be sure, but the music circulated in that year held considerably more hope. It marked a commercial rebirth of two of the era's most esteemed women artists while prompting the breakthrough of a third. It welcomed musical ambassadors from Sweden and Jamaica, and by year's end, it saw a storied New York band dissolve into a studio collective whose music would help define the decade. Here is a roundup of the ten landmark recordings from a time of turbulence, albums that in 2024 are celebrating the 50th anniversary of their release. ABBA, Waterloo. Long before Mamma Mia hit Broadway, before Dancing Queen commanded the discos and before audiences took a chance on Take a Chance on Me, Sweden's ABBA had met their Waterloo. Though not the group's first album, this was the initial recording released under the ABBA name. The title tune broke the group in North America and cemented its already devoted fan base throughout Europe. For the rest of the 70s, ABBA would serve as one of the foremost voices of Europop. Bob Marley and the Wailers, Natty Dread. For Marley, as well as for the entire evolution of reggae music, Natty Dread was a cornerstone work. It was Jamaica's first star's first album, following the departure of Key Whaler's members Peter Tosh and Bunny Whaler, prompting a return to the band's official moniker of Bob Marley and the Whalers. The record boasts two of the band's most enduring songs, No Woman to Cry and Lively Up Yourself, making Natty Dread a social and sexual revolution set to reggae rhythms. Jackson Brown, Late for the Sky. Late for the Sky, Jackson Brown's third album, 
remains the gold standard of songwriting from the sterling 1970s Southern California music community. Its songs are spiritual and solemn, darkly reflective, and fancifully rocking. Gordon Lightfoot, Sundown. Master Canadian songsmith, Lightfoot's extensive career reignited on at least three occasions. The first came in 1971 with If You Can Read My Mind. The third was triggered by one of the unlikeliest hits in pop history, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Sundown fell quietly in the middle, a 1974 album that produced Carefree Highway. Joni Mitchell, Court and Spark Few works redefine an artist's career the way the jazz-pop leanings of Court and Spark did for folk empress Joni Mitchell. Released three weeks into 1974, the record registered in a major way with audiences. The top ten single, Help, Help Me, was on the album and remained her best-selling album. Lou Reed, Rock and Roll Animal With his broadly grim 1973 album, Berlin, was trashed by critics. It was heralded decades later, though. Reed formed a new band, took to the stage of New York Academy of Music, and uncorked a set of dark yet celebratory songs drawn mostly from his Velvet Underground days. The resulting performance took a torch to the past, allowing brooders like Sweet Jane Heroin and White Light, White Heat to soar with fresh immediacy. Tom Waits, The Heart of Saturday Night On his second album, Tom Waits comes across as Frank Sinatra on a bender without blinders. He sounded cool, to be sure. He also sounded like he was plastered, the product of hipster insight, fractured jazz phrasing, and a descriptive astute insight into his human condition. The Hearts of Saturday Night may seem to some as nothing more than a dark, boozy nightclub act. Steely Dan, Pretzel Logic The cracks of pop convention came tumbling down in huge chunks on Steely Dan's third album. Though still a working quintet, the songwriting team of Donald Fagan and Walter Becker cemented control. The songs were shorter and sleeker. The song earned a major radio hit with Ricky Don't Lose That Number. Rufus, Rags to Rufus. This was the album that introduced the world to Chaka Khan. Though Rufus' sophomore recording, Rags to Rufus, was the Chicago band's breakthrough, the charge was led by Stevie Wonderpend, funk-infused manifesto titled, Tell Me Something Good. Linda Ronstadt, Heart Like a Wheel What Court and Spark did for Joni Mitchell at the onset of the year, Heart Like a Wheel did for Linda Ronstadt near the close of 1974. The Peter Asher-produced work turned updates of the Dee-Wee Warwick gem, You're No Good, and the Everly Brothers, When Will I Be Loved, into Ronstadt's first number one and number two hits. And that brings us to the end of our Globe Gazette reading for March 1st, 2024. I'm your reader, Bob. Thank you for sharing your time with Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And if you have any comments of this or any other Iris program, please give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we'll turn to reading The Messenger from Fort Dodge. And I'm your reader, Bob, and here is our first story. A Deserving Recipient Reek Receives Growth Alliance Catalyst Award 
City Staffer Has Leading Role in Many Projects by Bill Shea Vicki Reek, a Fort Dodge City Staffer, who has had a leading role in just about every economic development and housing project in the community over the last 20 years, was honored Thursday evening with the top award presented by the Greater Fort Dodge Growth Alliance. Reek, the city's community and economic development manager, received the Catalyst Award at the Growth Alliance annual dinner. After being handed the hefty sculpture that is the Catalyst Award, Reek spoke very briefly and softly saying, Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Reek has worked for the city for more than 35 years in various roles relating to planning and development. Kelly Hinman, the vice president of the Growth Alliance Board, who presented the award, said Reek's work is often behind the scenes as she negotiates development agreements, works on property acquisitions and dispositions, prepares financial pro formas, and calculates incentives packages. Hinman said Reek has been a key leader in these high-profile projects. Decker Development Park, Williams Bend Housing Area, Retaining Elanco in the Community, Redeveloping Phillips Middle School, Crosstown Connector, Corridor Plaza, Parkview Housing Area, Northwest River District, Lincoln Neighborhood Redevelopment, Nestle Purina Pet Care Plant Expansion. Additionally, she is known across the state for her expertise with brownfield sites and environmental cleanup, even speaking at EPA conferences about her brownfield cleanup expertise, Hinman said. Over the years, she has secured over a million dollars in state and federal brownfield grants and services, which have been instrumental in the redevelopment of many areas of our community. Reek's service to the community is not limited to her professional role. Hinman said she is active in these other capacities. Main Street, Fort Dodge, volunteer. Meals on Wheels, volunteer. Community Cleanup, volunteer. Facing Autism Annual Autism Awareness Walk, volunteer participation. Midas Council of Government board member. Fort Dodge Betterment Foundation board member. Greater Fort Dodge Growth Alliance Housing Committee member. What a deserving recipient, Hinman said. Nelson is Volunteer of the Year by Bill Shea. Fort Dodge City Councilman Cameron Nelson was honored as the Volunteer of the Year for the Greater Fort Dodge Growth Alliance Thursday night. Nelson was recognized for being an Alliance Ambassador helping at ribbon-cutting ceremonies. He is also a graduate of the Alliance's Leadership Fort Dodge Program and serves as a community tour guide. He is a member of the committee that oversees the Leadership Fort Dodge and Junior Leadership Fort Dodge programs. Nelson assists in recruiting new members to the Growth Alliance. Volunteers play a crucial role in the effectiveness of our organization, said Kelly Hinman, the vice president of the Growth Alliance Board, who presented the award. From serving on committees to serving community tours to helping with events, hundreds of individuals have volunteered their time to assist with the Growth Alliance's efforts. He added, tonight, it is my pleasure to announce that our Volunteer of the Year award goes to Councilman Cameron Nelson. Bill to Restrict Traffic Cameras Advances Law Enforcement Groups Oppose Iowa's Bill's Camera Ban by Kathy Obradovich 
Iowa lawmakers are taking another stab at trying to control traffic cameras with the overhaul of a bill that would restrict the uses and locations of automated law enforcement devices and regulate the revenues generated by them. Legislators have been wrestling for years over issues caused by the installation of cameras that can detect speeding or traffic signal violations and issue tickets to a vehicle owner. Opponents of the cameras say they're unconstitutional and serve as revenue generators for cities rather than traffic safety devices. Groups representing law enforcement in cities have defended the cameras as significant tools for improving public safety. The two sides have been at stalemate, but lawmakers are taking two modified approaches this year. One is a bill that combines a ban on traffic cameras with another long-debated proposal that would ban the use of cell phones or other handheld devices behind the wheel. Senate File 2337 is eligible for Senate debate and has not yet come to the floor. Law enforcement groups, despite advocating for the hands-free device language, remain opposed to the bill's traffic camera ban. Offenberger offers advice on economic development. Columnist has been involved in growth efforts for decades. Many who have lived in Iowa for a long time recognize the name Chuck Offenberger. They likely know him for his Iowa boy columns chronicling small-town life or for his unscientific polls attempting to determine who makes the best cinnamon rolls in the state. But over the years, Offenberger has done a lot more than write columns and simply sample tasty rolls. He has been involved in economic development in various ways for years. Based on those years of experience, Offenberger offered some advice to local leaders during Thursday evening's Greater Fort Dodge Growth Alliance annual dinner at Fort Frenzy. I encourage you, invest, take risks, have fun, hope you get lucky, and if you're negative, we're we're going around you, he said. He said he has been just fascinated with economic development my whole life, my whole adult life anyway. In the late 1990s, he served on a strategic planning commission appointed by then-Governor Tom Filsack. That panel was tasked with preparing a plan for what Iowa should be like in 2010. According to Offenberger, one of the things that came out of that commission was a basic concept what would become the Vision Iowa program in which the state government would help pay for creating major attractions and amenities. He said the panel also addressed the need to reverse the declining population in Iowa. The commission, he said, recommended finding ways to keep Iowa's young people in the state and to retain people who came into Iowa to go to college. He said it also recommended increasing immigration. That one went went nowhere, he said. It was too much of a hot potato. Offenberger now serves on the board of the Green County Multicultural Resource Center, an organization intended to help reverse a century's worth of population decline, in part by working with immigrants. We're going to become that rare rural Iowa community that will reverse that century of population decline, he said. He said Green County will have a multicultural workforce applying old-fashioned Iowa hard work to make quality products. The jobs, he said, are there in Green County. He said there are 200 to 300 jobs open right now that pay $20 per hour and higher. In the go and do section in Fort Dodge, the Knights of Columbus Lenten Fish Fry is 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. today at Corpus 
Christie Center, 405 North 8th Street. Dinners include fried fish, baked fish, shrimp or grilled cheese, served with baked potato or french fries, homemade coleslaw, roll, ice cream, and beverages. The meal will be served dine-in or carry-out. Tickets for fried fish, baked fish, or shrimp are $12. Combo meal for all three is $14. Grilled cheese or kids' portion is $6, and children age 5 and under are free. Also in Fort Dodge, A.V. Grouse Band with the Ronley King Blues Band will perform Saturday at the historic Phillips Auditorium, 1015 Fifth Avenue North. Doors open at 6 p.m. with music beginning at 6.30. General admission is $20. Beverages will be available for purchase. Tickets will be available at the door or at evenbright.com. A benefit for Megan Scott is noon to 4 p.m. Saturday at Rides Bar and Grill, 723 South 31st Street. There will be a free will donation meal and silent auction. Scott is battling leukemia. She is a wife and mother to four children. She works at the Fort Dodge Middle School as well as Community Early Childhood Center. River Valley Rock Rockhounds Incorporated, 59th Rock Gem Mineral Jewelry and Fossil Show, is 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Saturday and 11 to 4 p.m. Sunday at the Webster County Fairgrounds, 22770 Old Highway 169. There will be displays and dealers, a silent auction, hourly door prizes, children's area with free specimens and rock equipment. Admission is a dollar for adults, five dollars for family, and children's age 12 and under are free. Bring an egg carton for the kids' rocks. Around the area in Emmitsburg, VFW Lenten Fish Fry is 5 to 7 p.m. today at the VFW Emmitsburg. Orders to go may be called in at 712 712- Two nine eight zero eight eight three. Tickets are $12 for adults, $5 for children's ages 5 to 12, and for children under age 4 are free. At Goldsmith United Methodist Church, 121 West Chestnut, Goldfield, is holding a Matt Marathon Chili Fundraiser from 3 to 7 p.m. Saturday at the church. Those attending will learn about the church's Sleeping Map Mission project. Looms will be set up so everyone can take a turn at weaving. Please bring clean plastic grocery bags. Chili will be served beginning at 5 p.m. until gone for a free will donation. The meal is dine-in only, no carry-outs. And finally, at the Otho United Methodist Church in Otho, is holding its annual pancake breakfast from 7.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. Saturday in the church basement. The menu is made-from-scratch pancakes, eggs, sausage, and drinks for a free will offering. The church is handicapped accessible. And now we turn to our obituaries. Mary Ann Savage of Lake City. The funeral service will be at 3.30 p.m. Sunday, March 3, 2024, at the Lamp and Powers Funeral Home at Lake City, with a visitation from 2 to 3.30 p.m. at the funeral home. PowersFH.net William Becker, 11 a.m. Saturday at Trinity United Methodist Church. Visitation is 4 to 7 p.m. Friday at Trinity United Methodist Church. Elizabeth Lund, 2 p.m. Saturday at Badger Lutheran Church. 
Visitation is from 5 to 7 p.m. Friday at Gunderson Funeral Home. Heath Almond, 11.30 a.m. Sunday at Gunderson Funeral Home. Visitation is from 9.30 to 11.30 prior to the service at the funeral home. Darlian Evans, age 81. Celebration of Life, 12 to 3 p.m. Saturday at Bob Hewn Shelter at Kennedy Park. Dorothy Foster, age 89. The funeral is at 11 a.m. Tuesday. Lauferswiller Funeral Home. Visitation, one hour prior to the service. Turning back to state news, Bill on Armed School Staff Security Officer Funding Passes Iowa House. Critics say measure does not improve safety. Lawmakers in the Iowa House approved a measure Wednesday to provide permits for school staff to carry firearms on school grounds, despite Democratic opposition saying the measure will not improve school safety. House File 2586 passed with the 6134 vote. The legislation allows school personnel who meet training requirements to receive a permit for carrying a firearm on school grounds, in addition to taking other measures to bolster school security. The bill encourages school districts with 8,000 or more students to employ a school resource officer or security officer at facilities with students in grades 9 through 12, though school boards are able to opt out of the provision. The bill also establishes a school security personnel grant administered through the Department of Education that would provide schools with up to $50,000 in matching funds to put toward hiring police or security officers for schools. The nonpartisan legislative services agency estimated the proposal would cost the state $15.1 million. The bill does not deal with school insurance but speakers with school districts that had previously authorized school personnel to carry firearms under current law said at a subcommittee meeting on the bill that insurance was the largest issue preventing them from enacting these policies. Administrators with the Spirit Lake Community School District said their insurance, EMC insurance, informed the district that its liability insurance would not be renewed if the policy allowed armed staff or school campuses on-school campuses remained. The bill was amended in committee to provide qualified immunity for the application of reasonable force at the place of employment for school districts with policies allowing staff to carry firearms in an effort to address the issue of insurance coverage. Representative Beth Wessel Crossshell, Democrat from Ames, says the bill's protection for insurance companies may allow districts with firearm policies to obtain insurance, but does not address the problem that the insurance companies have identified. It does not reduce the risk to the student, Wessel Crossshell said. This bill puts more children in the line of fire, and nothing is more frightening. Democrats criticize the bill for promoting school staff's ability to carry firearms in schools. Representative Sammy Sheets, Democrat from Cedar Rapids, brought up the January 4th Perry High School shooting as a stark reminder of the need to improve safety for students, teachers, and school staff. Sheets said she understood the Republicans introduced the bill as a means to make students safer in schools, but said that the measure was not a serious bill to stop gun violence. 
He called for state lawmakers to instead pass bills on issues like responsible firearm storage, raising the minimum age for purchasing semi-automatic firearms, and requiring background checks on gun sales, as well as passing laws to improve school safety through threat assessment programs, security upgrades, and emergency planning programs. I'm voting against this bill because it does nothing to prevent more gun deaths, Sheets said. Instead, we should prioritize prevention, intervention, and sensible gun legislation. Instead of pursuing policies like this, it will increase danger for children and our educators. Let's build a future where our schools are not minefields of dangerous weapons, but havens of learning. House Majority Leader Matt Winchilt pushed back against arguments that Iowa lawmakers should instead focus on funding for mental health and improving school safety infrastructure. He questioned his Republican colleagues on these issues, saying that lawmakers are currently considering bills to improve these aspects. He also emphasized that the measure was voluntary, as school districts would have to adopt the policy to allow staff to carry firearms, and school staff would have to voluntarily choose whether to carry on school grounds. But Winschelt says the topic and of arming school staff is a local control issue, and a decision that school districts should be allowed to make on an individual basis. If some of our politicians out in Washington, D.C. are going to have guns that protect them, if we're going to have business leaders that have firearms that protect them, if we're going to have very rich people that have private security protect them, why would we not afford the same opportunity on a voluntary basis for people that are willing to go through the training, willing to take on this risk, willing to put their lives on the line for our children in an active shooter situation, Winchild said. Why would we not give them the same opportunity and the same protections that all of these other people have? Several Democrats brought up the risk arming staff could cause during active shooter situations. Representative Bob Kresick, Democrat Cedar Falls, said problems would not arise in situations where a police officer incorrectly identifies a teacher as an active shooter because they are carrying a gun, or where a teacher targets a shooter, but a bullet hits a student. Representative John Willis, Representative Spirit Lake, argued the measure was necessary as it provides more safety and response support than is currently available in some Iowa school districts. Turning to sports, in the girls' state hoop roundup, in Class 5A, Johnston beat Waukee 74-33. Dowling beat Cedar Falls 59-48. Those two teams, Johnston and Dowling, will face in the state championship game in 5A tonight at 6 p.m. In Class 4A, Clear Creek Amana 50, North Polk 48, and Waverly Shellrock 41, Sioux City Helan 37. In Class 3A, Esterfeld Lincoln 45, Mount Vernon 37. Triton women head to national wrestling meet. Led by four returning All-American wrestlers, the Iowa Central women are set to compete at the NCAA NJCAA championships beginning here Friday. The two-day event takes place inside the Mid-American Center in Council Bluffs. Kayleen Younger, Bronwyn Brenneman, Princess Alcisi, and Brianna Arrijo-Batista 
all secured medical medals last year for the Tritons and head coach Zach Hensley. They are joined by 16 others, including former Fort Dodge Senior High State Champion Alexis Rose Ross in the tournament. Our team has been working hard to get to their best, Hensley said. With a strong lineup, we are excited and confident that our team will showcase their skills on the national stage. Brenneman and Aurora Batista are both seated number two at their respective weights, and Emma Lewis, Deanna Pineda, Rodiat Auditan, and Adina Dean Dinwiddie earn number two seeds. Ross, a freshman, is fifth at 136 pounds. Iowa Central enters the week ranked third in the country behind Indian Hills and Mpakwa. They placed fourth a season ago at the meet behind Indian Hills, Apaqua, and Iowa Western. Ross will take on Andrea Yates from Southeast in her first match as teammates Dakota Whitman and Hattie Hood join her in the bracket. Lewis and Maya Rausch are at 101 pounds, Panita at 109, Adentutan at 116, and Dinwiddie, Younger, and Rhonda Fay Arado at 123. Brenneman is joined by Avery and Anna Sondal at 130, Alcisa and Cami Shantz at 143, Olivia Fosnow at 155, Aurel Batista at 170, Isabel Canada at 191, and Cynthia Ellis and Rose Rother, Rose Rother at 235. Last year, Indian Hills finished with four champions and scored 287 points to place first. And Pacwa had three individual winners, with Southwestern Oregon claiming two. Both Carl Albert State and Iowa Western crowned one. In the advice column, mother-in-law longs for order. Dear Annie, I need advice on how to approach my son about the disorder in his house. He was raised in a very neat home. When he lived alone for several years, his house was immaculate. He's now been married for four years. They have a two-year-old and one on the way. Their house is in total disaster. Laundry basket full of dirty clothes, counters and every surface full of junk. He does all the cooking and works full time. I don't want to insult them, but I can afford to get them organized. I don't want to overstep as the mother-in-law, though. Any advice? Neat freak. Dear Neat Freak, it sounds like your son and his wife have their hands full with a two-year-old and another on the way. I'm sure your son would appreciate a little help around the house, but it is but it is possible his wife might not. She might have grown up in a messy household, and that's what makes her comfortable. Have a conversation with them without criticizing them. Acknowledge how busy they are and that you want to offer your services around the house in a way that might be helpful. Let's hope that cleaning and organize top their list. But even if they employ your services with other chores, it will free up more time for them. Remember, the old couple were Felix and a neat freak and Oscar was a slob. Is that what you are dealing with? You might need to back off if you want to avoid being a meddling mother-in-law. Dear Annie, I try my best not to be a jealous person. My boyfriend of three years has been sick and just got out of the hospital from a cancer-related health issue. He lives at home with me. He and his, he said that there is nothing wrong with letting all his exes come by our home to visit him after getting out of the hospital. I have a problem with that. 
I don't care how he throws a fit that there are just friends and there is nothing going on between him or any of them. He just started telling them that they could come by, come on by, and he never even asked me if it was okay with me or if I had bad feelings about it. He just decided it doesn't matter how I feel about it and that he can have them visit him at our home anytime they want. Annie, am I wrong or selfish for getting offended and upset about this decision that he made, no matter if I like it or not, because these are his friends? Please tell me because he thinks that I'm wrong for getting upset and mad about it. What should I have done in this ordeal? Upset girlfriend. Dear upset girlfriend, exes popping up can be uncomfortable under any circumstance, but the fact that your boyfriend invited them around without a discussion or your consent makes it even worse. For him to then get so bent out of shape and angry at you is unacceptable. In instances like these, open communication with your partner is crucial. Share your concerns with him and figure out how to set boundaries together. It sounds like the real issue here is that he doesn't take you into consideration when he makes decisions, which is a big red flag and one that must be addressed for your relationship to thrive. And we'll finish today with the weather forecast for the next few days. Today it's supposed to be sunny with a high around 60 and a low around 34. Winds strong at 15 to 20 miles an hour. Saturday a high around 67 with a low around 49. Sunday a high 74, a low 34. Monday, mostly sunny with a high around 53 and a low around 26. Continuing Sunday on Tuesday with a high around 54 and a low around 30. Wednesday into Thursday, it becomes more cloudy with highs in the mid 50s and the lows in the low to mid 30s. And that will bring us to the end of today's reading of the Fort Dodge and Mason City papers. I'm your reader, Bob. Thank you for sharing your time with Iris on the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. And if you have comments on this or any other Iris program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. Thank you for your time today.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Since the dawn of humankind, people have used caves to explore, hold religious ceremonies, create art, or avoid the dangers of weather and predators. Partly because of that, they continue to fascinate scientists today. To create a cave, Mother Nature needs three things. Water, rock that can be dissolved by it, and lots of time. Rainwater, as it falls through the atmosphere, picks up carbon from CO2 to become a weak carbonic acid. By the time it hits Earth, it's about as acidic as coffee. As it percolates through the soil, it picks up more carbon from decaying plants, becoming a slightly stronger acid. If the rock below the soil is limestone, gypsum, or dolomite, the water can dissolve along tiny cracks. Over many thousands of years, the cracks become channels, then tunnels, and could eventually become caverns. Water might also mix with hydrogen sulfide gas seeping up from natural oil and gas deposits to form sulfuric acid, which can also dissolve the rock. Protected from daily and seasonal changes on the surface, caves can maintain a stable temperature and humidity. In these delicate environments, the remains of ancient animals and humans, which could have quickly decayed on the surface, have been preserved for millennia. Deeper, more isolated caves have preserved bacteria and microbes undisturbed for millions of years. These qualities make caves important sites for researchers, natural time capsules. There's probably an amazing cave near you, so take a trip and get to know your Earth. I'm Scott Tinker, dissolving mysteries on Earth Date. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.